Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey there, it's Arshi. I just wanted to let you all know that we're hard at work putting together our next season of Commons. We've already got the theme down, we've done some interviews, gotten some snazzy new music, and we're really excited for you all to listen. Look out for it in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, I've got something else I think you should be listening to. It's a brand new investigation by some of my colleagues here at Canadaland, and it's something they've been working on for almost a year. It's launching today, and it's called Cool Mules. It's about an international cocaine trafficking ring that was run in part by a music editor at Vice Media out of their offices in Toronto. Seriously, young reporters who were trying to get some experience in media instead got roped into smuggling bricks of cocaine to Australia. There's a lot of people who went to prison for this. And the guy behind it all? Well, he's finally talking about his crimes. The show is hosted by Kasia Mihailovich, and it really is perfect for fans of Commons. I'm going to play you the first episode of Cool Mules, but I urge you to go subscribe to the show right now. The second episode is already online. Here is Cool Mules. Meet Slava. So my original name was Yaroslav Pastikov, but that's way too long. So I shortened it to Slava Pastikov, and then I shortened that to Slava Pastuk, and then I shortened that to Slava P. Slava is 29 years old, tall, broad-shouldered, thinning hair. He's got a regular amount of tattoos for a hipster, so a lot. When I meet him, he's wearing board shorts and a t-shirt, just regular around the house clothes. He lives in Brampton, a suburb of Toronto, and doesn't get out much. He spends a lot of time in the basement playing video games and watching old crime movies. He says he's teaching himself Morse code. This is his mom and stepdad's house. When I come over, I meet his mom and her huge Rottweiler that you're going to hear from. I think my mail is here. (laughs) Slava moved back home in 2019. Not because he wanted to. He had to. He's under house arrest. I think the official charges I'm in for conspiracy to import commercial quantities of cocaine into Australia. 40 kilograms. When I talk to him, Slava's getting ready to plead guilty to this crime and go to prison for years. He doesn't know for how long exactly, but he's pretty sure the authorities don't plan to go easy on him. 
From what I understand, they're not looking for cooperation from, from me. Like, they kind of have their mindset. And from what I've kind of put together, I think there's been a lot of public pressure on them to do something about this. So I think they're going to come down hard. Public pressure because this crime was news in Australia, the U.S., and Canada. And while five young people sat in prison in Australia for years for actually smuggling the drugs, a person who put them up to it was walking free. I don't think that they're going to be happy with anything but the book being thrown at that person. This is not a whodunit mystery or a story about an innocent man falsely accused. Slava's guilty. He told me so. But there's something else he wants you to know. There are no villains in this story. There's no winners, but there's no villains. Pretty much nobody else involved with the story agrees with that. He knew everything that he was doing was wrong, but he was just, he knew that he, he wasn't getting caught, you know, and he was gaming the system to its maximum potential. And now he just doesn't know what to do because it's like the whole thing collapsed. This guy is a pathological liar. He's lied to all these kids. He's lied to you, and he's going to continue lying to paint a picture that suits his case. Slava objects to the way he's been portrayed in the media and how his co-conspirators have talked about him at their trials. They were all just trying to make some money, and so was he. And none of this would have happened, he says, if it weren't for his job. Unfortunately, a lot of people thought it was really cool. A lot of people were making comparisons between me and Pusha T, or me and other rappers that are heavily in the drug game. Slava's not a rapper. He was a website editor and a music journalist. Slava worked for Vice, the global youth culture media brand. Last winter, Slava got in touch with us here at Canada Land, wanting to go on the record about his crimes. Despite the news coverage, Slava had never given an interview to any other reporter. By going on the record here, against the advice of his lawyer, Slava is worried that he's exposing himself to new charges and extra years of possible prison time. In multiple interviews, Slava admits to way more than what he's been convicted of in court. So I want to know why he did it all. But I also want to know why he's decided to tell me about it. I do know why I'm talking to him. It's because I've been interested in Vice for a long time. As a teenager in Toronto in the 2000s, I'd always stop in at the clothing stores along Queen Street to see if the new, free issue of Vice magazine was in yet. I'd laugh or get mad at the fashion do's and don'ts, and I also saw graphic photos of bodies blown apart in Iraq. To me, it all felt taboo, raw, and cool. I'd be lying if I said Vice didn't influence my decision to become a journalist. And I'm definitely not the only one. In the last decade of journalism, Vice has been one of the few newsrooms that was growing, while others were either getting slashed or going under entirely. Vice was ubiquitous to anyone trying to make their way in the industry. My ex worked for Vice, a lot of my friends have worked there, and when I lived in New York, like a lot of journalists, I was asked to interview for a job as a reporter for Vice News Tonight, their daily TV show. I didn't get the job. And so when, in 2017, news broke that one of its editors here in Toronto had used his position to prey on young journalists, interns, and others hoping to be in the orbit of Vice, I followed along, wrapped. And now, I find myself here, 
on a chilly spring day in 2019, sitting across from Slava in his mom's bungalow. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, and this is Cool Mules. Well, I asked him, I said, I said, what's in the suitcase? Like, he wouldn't tell me. He uh, has declined to comment. He's declined to discuss this, and he's declined to rebut any of the allegations that we told him in great, excruciating detail. This basically sounded like a multi-level marketing scheme, but for drug trafficking. I'm sure on this podcast he denies everything, but of course he is also a convicted criminal. Let's just be honest. If you're dealing with a Mexican cartel, you never really safe, are you? You can say, I'm a bad person. But you can't say I'm a liar. If you want to understand Slava's crimes, how a music editor became an international drug runner, you first need to understand Slava. In Slava's mom's basement, there are pictures on the wall of him as a cute, chubby kid. One is of Slava at a Disney park, and he's beaming in the water beside a dolphin. Slava came to Canada from Ukraine when he was four years old, staying for a while in Toronto before moving around a lot with his mom. When we first moved to Canada, my mom and I stayed at the Ukrainian mission. Then from there, we moved to, like, I think I counted it once, and we lived at, we've had 17 addresses. They mostly lived in the suburbs or cities near Toronto, like Scarborough, Aurora, and then Barry for his high school years. What was I like in high school? I definitely wasn't the most popular guy. One book that really helped him overcome being socially awkward was The Game by Neil Strauss. So I was 16, 17. I was working in the coolest place in Barry, which was a Starbucks. And the Starbucks was connected to a chapters. I picked up the game and it literally changed my life. Not in like a creepy way, but just like how to talk to women and how to get a conversation going when you're not sure what to say. The Game is by a New York Times music journalist who set out to report on the world of pickup artists and then quickly became one himself. Pickup artists use a playbook of lies and manipulation to have sex with women, treating all interactions with other humans as simply transactional. Slava went to university, but never graduated. He moved just north of Toronto and got a job. At first, writing about music was just a hobby. I started off in a marketing role in Toronto with a lot of free time, so I would write about concerts and review shows. He also self-published an ebook in 2011. It's called Bros and Hoes in Prose. Weirdly, it's dedicated to his mom. That led to me being noticed by a blog out in LA, an independent music blog, which led to me being noticed by the editor of the Vice Music Vertical at the time. And uh, I started writing just freelance for them. The first article Slava wrote for Vice was published in January 2013. The headline was, How to Make Money Off Rap Without Really Rapping. Subheadline, it's easy. You just have to sort of be a con artist. It's pretty obviously a joke, but one of the options it lists is becoming a music journalist. And that's what Slava did. A lot of the people at Vice were just kind of hired because they were easy to be around. So I really just lucked into it. Like, I'm not sure if the fact that I look like what I look like or I am who I am had anything to do with it. Probably did. I mean, I mean, I kind of look like everyone else who works at Vice. I'm a white bearded guy, you know? That helps pretty much anywhere. Most of what I was writing as a freelancer was like, this sucks. Or this musician is overrated. 
And that's what led to me getting noticed by them. It took just a year for Slava to go from writing his first freelance article in 2013 to getting a full-time job as top editor of Noisy Canada, Vice's music site. It's hard to overstate just how important the Vice job was to Slava. He made it the focus of his life, soon moving from the suburbs to a downtown West End apartment just around the corner from Vice's office. Being the music editor at a media company that people call the Hipster Bible is a pretty influential job in certain circles. Slava got to decide which musicians got written about, what shows got covered, and whose albums got reviewed. I have any bar that I can go to downtown. People are constantly inviting me to events. Like, I feel like the prettiest girl of the prom, you know? Yeah, I can skip a line. I just go up to the front and tell the bouncer I work for Vice. I'm writing about the band inside. Doesn't have to be true. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really a golden ticket to the city. It was exa- like, looking back on it, it was exhausting. When, once you tell someone that not only you work for Vice, but that you work for the music portion of Vice, their entire demeanor towards you changes. And it goes from them talking about themselves to talking about this band that they know, or their friend who's a musician, or their buddy that owns a studio. And they start, they go into sales mode with you. Now they want something from you. So yeah, it was an interesting lifestyle, for sure. When Slava started at Vice, the Toronto office was small, even though the company was 19 years old. When I started working there, I think I was one of 12 people. They had their social team, they had their sales team, and they had um, just one person in editorial, I think. I was 23 at the time, so Mm -hmm. I wasn't really thinking about my long-term future. Instead, Slava was enjoying himself at clubs and hip-hop shows, then bringing the party back to his apartment or starting it at the Vice office. In Slava's eyes, even the bathrooms at Vice's next office subtly encouraged his hard drug use. All the bathrooms had white tiles and private stall doors, you know? So (laughs) it kind of implies that those are used for what they're used for. So if you wanted to go into the bathroom and do a, a bump of Coke, it wasn't encouraged, but it wasn't necessarily something that would uh, be frowned upon. See, I feel like stuff like that would get me in trouble. Like, yeah, I did, I've done drugs with people who worked at Vice before. Yeah, but I mean, who, who, yeah, that's normal coworker stuff. For the record, Vice has said that this is not normal coworker stuff. In a statement to the newspaper, The National Post, when all of this broke, they said that, quote, any allegations that Vice Canada somehow fosters a culture of illicit substance use in the office is plainly false. Our employee handbook contains a zero-tolerance policy for such activity. We asked them more questions about this, but they didn't respond. According to Slava, the drug use that became normal for him at Vice was not the norm for him until he took that job. I'm not, like, a drug user. It was the lifestyle that I was embedded in, but that was just as a result of working at Vice. Like, you know, the only time I really did cocaine regularly was when I was working at Vice. You do some MDMA, and then you're on MDMA, so you do some coke, and then you can't get to sleep, so you do Xanax. And it's really just like a, a, a stairway of escalation, escalation of, of drug use to cope with the last drug you took. Tanera Yelland worked with Slava at Vice at the time. As people might guess from the reputation that Vice has, there are people who work there who sometimes indulge in illicit substances and... He and I were both, um, had both done that. 
like, knowingly together. This wasn't directly sanctioned or encouraged by management, of course, but alcohol was. Vice soon had an open bar for its workers right in the office. It was one of the perks that kept employees happy, even if many of them were making very little money. Yeah, but that's the thing is like, you don't get paid very much. So for my, my initial gig, when I started working there, I was getting paid $17,000 for a six-month contract. Vice was known for paying people really poorly, even as it became a multi-billion dollar international media giant. After Slava's contract ran out, his job just kept going with no contract in place. He was never put on staff. He just went paycheck to paycheck with no real job security. So he got a side gig to pay the bills. Not a part-time job in retail. That would be embarrassing. You need another source of income, and people look down on people who have a job at Zoomies or people who have a job at Zara or Aldo or something like that, right? Like, I know rappers who are nobodies that refuse to take the subway because they think it's bad for their image. But an illicit side hustle was okay. Yeah, I was selling weed on Grinder. Like, I was selling weed on Grinder to make some extra money. Grinder is a hookup app for gay men, but it's also used to sell drugs sometimes. And that was just one of his extracurricular activities. The other was the semi-secret marketing scheme he says he ran with his work buddy from Vice, Ali Takilalji. Ali would later be charged as Slava's co-accused in the cocaine smuggling conspiracy. Unlike Slava, Ali maintains his innocence. None of the charges or allegations against him have been proven in court. Slava says they moonlit as influencer marketers, which meant doing things like asking a local rapper if he'd be willing to take a selfie while wearing a certain brand of sneakers in exchange for $600. In any newsroom I've worked in, doing something like that would be considered a huge conflict of interest for an editor, easily a fireable offense. But Slava didn't think Vice would care. He felt that implicit in Vice's lousy pay was permission for employees to find a side hustle or two. It's like, you're going to be brought in on a shitty salary, but it's up to you to make the most of it. So that type of culture happens a lot because it's encouraged by the people that bring you on. And it's like, we're going to pay you nothing, but Bob's your oyster, or the world's your oyster. Bob's your oyster. It's not the worst motto to describe the haze of ambition and optimism that was floating around the city at the time. By 2014, Toronto was becoming known internationally for its cultural capital. It was actually getting kind of cool. And it had a lot to do with a guy you may have heard of. I want to thank everybody from the city for coming out tonight. Vice News Tonight. A while back, Drake popularized calling Toronto the six after the 416 area code. So Drake, Drake is something that I can take ownership of and say, no one else talk about this. This is my beat. This is my guy. Anytime you write about Drake, you're going to do amazingly on the site. And the goal is always to do very well on the site and have your name be at the top of Chartbeat. Chartbeat, for people who don't know, is a way for you to monitor the metrics of a site in real time. So if you put out a story and it features Drake, it's going to do well. To Slava and to everyone at Vice Canada... Doing well meant making content that got noticed by Vice HQ in New York. Before Drake, it was hard to get noticed covering hip-hop in Toronto. Other cities covered by Noisy were the priority, some even getting their own TV shows. The big flagship for my vertical was Noisy Atlanta, Noisy Chicago. 
We want to do Noisy Toronto. But Toronto isn't Atlanta or Chicago. Slava says the tropes that Vice showcased from those cities weren't going to work here. One of the striking images that's always associated with a noisy Atlanta or a noisy Chicago was young black kids pointing guns at the camera. Hi, it's Thomas. Uh, welcome to Atlanta, a drug trafficking hub for the East Coast and the home of trap music. What do you got? What is that? I can't see it. Oh, 40 and a 45. And we knew for a fact that we couldn't get that in Toronto. So there were things like that that I would get discouraged by because I still want to do a noisy Toronto show, but we can't because we don't have these tropes that are widely accepted but not highly publicized as being popular Vice tropes. Slava suddenly found new hope to break into TV when Vice Canada announced a two-year, $100 million partnership with Rogers, an old-school telecom company struggling to connect with young audiences. There's this murmur of, we're going to be doing a lot more video. No one really knows for why. They brought us into the meeting room and they said, you know, we got this Rogers money coming in. This is something we've been looking to do for a really long time. This is going to be the pilot for something they're looking to do across all uh, of the Vice territories. So uh, Canada was essentially going to be the guinea pig. And they said, we need to produce 10 to 100 times the amount of video we're producing now. So if anyone has any TV show ideas, let them know. We're going to create Canadian-focused content that we will use exclusively on our mobile phones. In addition, we will also create a new TV channel for Vice. Suddenly, it felt like anybody in the office could come up with a TV show and anybody in the office could host one. And if it took off, who knows? Vice was simultaneously working with HBO. The sky was the limit. So why not Slava? So hosting was always something I liked doing. I hosted a few daily Vice live hits, actually. Hi, I'm Slava Pastic, the editor of Noisy Canada, and I'm going to be counting down my most and least favorite things of 2015 for you. So absolutely, I feel like I was entitled to host something because you have to remember, I was also part of this original... 12 that started off the company who's here for the pre-Roger stuff and now people are getting brought in who are leapfrogging me. Vice built a newer, bigger office a block over in Liberty Village, a freshly constructed community of condos and big box stores right beside older, grittier Parkdale. And with the new office came new co-workers and a different work culture. And that's the other thing is as the Rogers money is coming in and we're making all these hires, we really don't know how to act or how to behave anymore. I mean, the one example I used, but there was um, a person, really cool guy, I forget his name, but he was essentially just like helping out around the office, putting together chairs. And he went, he smoked weed on his break and they found out he smoked weed on his break and they fired him on the spot. And I'm like, I thought this was vice. The flip side to all the hope and optimism that came with the windfall was a sense of fear. Slava was worried that as Vice Canada took off, he might get left behind. The shelf life for a music journalist, no matter how good you are, is very short. You're constantly worried about like, am I going to get, like, people are getting fired for no reason. Am I going to get fired? Do I need to keep going above and beyond? Who's not getting fired? Let me see what they're doing. Okay, this person's doing X, Y, and Z. Maybe I should do something more along those lines to maintain job security. The things that were cool at Vice before we're maybe not so cool anymore. We're trying to grow up is kind of the theme. It's like, we, I know that we're Vice, but we're trying to grow up and we're trying to be better than, than our frat boy uh, past. That was kind of the, the overall vibe that, that Ryan gave me. 
That's Ryan Archibald, Vice Canada's president and managing director at the time. Slava says Ryan tried to warn him about the changing values of Vice even before the Rogers deal, after a particularly messy summer night. Vice was co-sponsoring a huge concert with the skate shoe company Vans, held on the Toronto Islands about 15 minutes away by ferry. The polluted waterway between downtown and the islands is an industrial shipping zone, and not a short distance. Slava jumped in. I got too drunk during the Push It concert, and I tried to swim home from the island. And as a result of swimming home, I got picked up in a police boat. Then the police boat brought me back to the shore, and I took a cab home. I didn't get arrested or anything, but I tweeted that I got arrested at the North by Northeast Vice Party. And then he had to talk to me about deleting that tweet and, like, watching my level of intake at parties. Instead, he doubled down and did something that would eventually get himself arrested for real. That's next. If Slava was worried that he wasn't taken seriously by the new crop of ambitious, journalism-focused people brought in to help Vice mature its brand, well, he was right. Oh, I don't know. He's just a bit of a... Uh, how, do I put this, how do I put this more uh, directly? Um, it's a bit of an idiot. One of his Vice colleagues at the time, reporter Justin Ling, remembers Slava's reputation around the office. But, like, he was funny, you know, he was charming, he was the music guy, like, he wasn't the... Never the smartest guy in the room, but I mean, he was a bit of a goon. Slava remembers being called a goon by his colleagues. He says that when his boss introduced him to the celebrity filmmaker Spike Jones, he called Slava the office goon. You can tell that memory still stings, even though he acknowledges he deserves some of the names he's been called. People I met in Toronto that I met from working at Vice may not have liked me because, you know, I was kind of an asshole. Slava didn't like that, but he thought, wasn't this whole organization founded by self-proclaimed assholes doing great gonzo journalism? Like, when I grew up and watched Vice, the people that I remembered were people who had these watershed shows, people who went to Liberia to buy guns or went to go lick this frog in the Amazon jungle that got you all hallucinated. Welcome to Bogota, Colombia. We're here chasing after the most dangerous drug in the world. Burundanga. So I wanted to have a marquee show that was mine. If Slava had an ally and a role model at work, he felt it was Ben McCoo. Yes, Ben was a trained journalist doing serious reporting on national security, but he was also a bearded, tattooed guy from old Vice. He'd started at Vice as an intern. But Ben was successfully finding a place for himself in the new regime. Slava liked his stories. Ben, to his credit, was the only person who was doing stuff like that because he was talking to ISIS and he was doing all these other uh, national security stories that were interesting. So Ben um, and I got hired at the same time. Ben scored a coup of a story when he made contact with a young Canadian kid who had run off to Syria and Iraq to fight with ISIS. The story was both a wild, extreme old vice story and a newsy, serious new vice story. It cemented Ben's place in the company, and he ended up getting his own show called Cyber War. I've seen firsthand the forces taking aim on mainstream culture, helping fuel the political rivalry that's engulfing the nation. I can't help but wonder what the cultural landscape will look like if the trolls keep winning. If there was a strategy to staying relevant, Ben had figured it out. 
One day, after the Rogers money started flowing, Slava says he took a walk with Ben. Ben and I went to go get lunch at a cafe that was kind of close to the Liberty Village location. And while we're walking, Ben was kind of talking about how we're doing too many things now that aren't from our soul of what vice is. Like I was saying, it's not what we came up on. He asked me, he goes, is it possible for you to get a gun so that we can see where guns come from and kind of track their import into Canada so we can do a story on that? Um, I mean, that was the implication. He asked me, can you get a gun? Uh, he also asked me to do, to, if I can get some other stuff, but I couldn't get a gun. So I went, no, I don't know how to do that. But I, I did ask a few people if it was possible to do that. And they all told me never to text them again. Because if you text someone, can you get me a gun? <laughs> it's as a journalist. Yeah. So he was really thinking about those three things when trying to see if I could get someone. Like, do you know anyone who runs guns? Do you know anyone who pimps girls? So I think he asked me because... I was the only person he could really ask who he knew wouldn't freak out at the notion of being able to, to go get a gun, I guess. We asked Ben McCoo about this conversation, and he declined to go on the record about it. We have no evidence that McCoo ever asked Slava to do anything illegal. Finding out how guns get into Canada is definitely something that Vice would be interested in. I could understand why he would ask me that question. And I do agree. Maybe we don't have to do so much of this, like, new Vice stuff where it's like feminism and I masturbated with a robot and I interviewed the robot about it. That sounds like it's a joke, but I think he's referring to an actual vice story here. I made it my mission to experience the first male doll because, you know, gender equality. And maybe it's more like core vice values, drugs, guns, sex. If you believe Slava, the idea of getting his own core vice values story stuck with him. And that's just the kind of story, says Slava, that soon fell into his lap. The person I mentioned to you before, the person who worked at Vice from the very start who worked in sales, Ali, he knows a lot of people. Ali broke up with his girlfriend around May 2015. And he just had a lot more free time. And I'm always down to hang out, so we started hanging out a lot more. One of the people that Ali knew was... Um, a big musclehead guy in Toronto who we'll call Trey. Slava can call him Trey, but I don't have to because I know that his name is Michael Ford, a name he legally changed from Michael Hindler in 2015 in Nova Scotia. Perhaps this was to get away from his past. Michael was convicted of having sex with a 13-year-old in 2009 when he was 18. By the mid-2010s, Mike had moved to Toronto and was another bearded guy with tattoos. He liked hitting the gym and showing his body off on Instagram. Again, Slava will call him Trey. He was a socialite. So Trey was out and about all the time, fairly popular guy. He was just a guy that wanted, he wanted some of that Vice clout. You know, he ended up actually applying for a job at Vice. He wants to be featured in Vice. Whenever I mentioned a Vice video was being shot, he'd be like, oh, can I be in that video? Trey wants... So Trey, there's a good anecdote I can tell you. See, it's a, it's a pretty revealing anecdote, so I don't know if I should say it. He essentially made a fake dating profile on a gay hookup app to get his Instagram followers up. He's not gay. 
Mike helped Slava pursue his first big lead on a possible breakthrough Vice story. Slava had caught wind of a rumor that a newly buffed Drake had been using steroids. And Slava sensed a fantastic scoop. According to Slava, Mike knew a guy who sold steroids. Maybe he could help. I asked Michael Ford for his side of this, by the way. I sent him questions through his Instagram, by email, and called him. He never answered any of my questions. So Slava says he reached out to Mike's steroid source. Mike's steroid source is another person who Slava does not want to implicate. He calls this person Tweedledee. The way I originally reached out to Tweedledee was because I was writing a story on is Drake doing steroids or not? Trey put me in contact with Tweedledee because I knew that Trey did steroids. He's like, I'll put you in touch with my steroids guy. He's a doctor. He knows a bunch of stuff about how this whole thing works. I approached him originally to be like, hey, do you think Drake's doing steroids? Blah, blah, blah. Tweedledee, says Slava, never heard anything about Drake doing steroids. And let me be clear, Slava wasn't able to find anything to substantiate that rumor at all. As far as he was able to determine, it just wasn't a thing. So the first contact I had with Tweedledee was, hey, I'm a journalist writing a story about drugs. They were steroids at the time. But there was another thing. While hanging out at Slava's apartment, Slava says Mike told him that Tweedledee had a different drug business, one that he ran with a partner, who Slava will call, as you may have guessed, Tweedledum. Tweedledee and Tweedledum, these guys are just as yoked up as Trey is, muscle-bound, one guy is Asian, one guy is African, Both of them are Canadians. These guys are just the most interesting people I've ever met. And they were running drugs through Brazil, Thailand. He mentioned all these exotic locations. I go, you know, this would be a really interesting story. Like, I want to figure out how this works. So there it was. An interesting story. I thought, this sounds cool. (laughs) This sounds like my ticket to a huge Vice show. I thought that it was um, a really interesting story. And I thought that... I should take advantage of this somehow. (sighs) I thought it was cool. Oh, fuck. My career would have been set. I would have been where Ben is now. I would have been in New York, probably still working for them, working on ideating larger concepts that probably never really get made. But I get to stay busy, and I get to stay working at an office that has a bar in it. And that's the reason why Slava says he jumped at the chance to get involved in an international drug smuggling ring. It was for the story. He thought that trafficking drugs to Australia would be a good move for his media career. But things did not work out that way. Slava isn't at Vice's New York headquarters, ideating larger concepts over free drinks at the office bar. He's speaking to us in his mom's bungalow in Brampton, waiting to go to prison. Others are still in prison too, half a world away. What happens next involves a DJ, two models, an aspiring music manager, a secret recording, Instagram, millions of dollars of high-purity cocaine, and, allegedly, a Mexican drug cartel. In other words, it's just the kind of story you might expect to read about in Vice. But you never did, and some people involved have told me to ignore Slava's claim that he got into all of this as a journalist, chasing content for Vice. They say that this is just his excuse, his justification for taking advantage of young people he had influence over and ruining their lives. And there might be truth to that. But the whole truth 
as you'll soon hear, is a lot more complicated. Well, I want to be very clear. I'm not blaming Vice. However, that, yeah, I mean, I didn't pursue this. I wouldn't pursue this had I worked in other media companies, but I would never worked in another media company. Since we first interviewed Slava, his story keeps changing. But he's steadfast on this point, that getting involved with smuggling cocaine to Australia was going to be his ticket to Vice stardom. He's so consistent on this that sometimes I do believe that he thinks it's true. From the start, Vice's model was you could pay people almost nothing, or actually nothing, to immerse themselves in the most extreme parts of the world and report back, to expose and exploit every detail of their own lives. And even as the company has grown and professionalized and even matured, much of that foundational culture has remained. I can't help but agree with Slava that he wouldn't have fit in at any other mainstream journalism outlet the way he fit in at Vice. As one of Slava's colleagues put it to us, They pay you in coolness, you know, and you stay there because of coolness. You start being worried about how that currency might leave you. That's next time. Hi, it's Arshi again. That was Cool Meals Episode 1. For Episode 2, go search for Cool Meals wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Thanks again. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.